Hello, curiosity seekers. Welcome to Dissecting Medical History. I'm Ange. I'm a travel nurse, medical history enthusiast, and your host. If you're looking for a storytelling formatted podcast with fun and fascinating topics on history and bios, then you are in the right spot. Please note this is not in any way medical advice. If you have anything that's ever discussed in any of the podcast episodes, please seek medical attention. Now, let's get this story started. If you've listened to my first two podcast episodes on executioners, then you know that I adore historic fiction. And while that episode focused on the life of a real executioner, this one will focus on the events and people that influenced Mary Shelley's famous book called Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. We will also discuss the real-life influences of Victor Frankenstein mentioned in the book, and we'll discuss some of the challenges Frankenstein would have come across in making his creature. Now, you don't need to have read Frankenstein in order to follow along with today's episode, but I do want to caution, there are some spoilers. The book is not like the movies, and you can always go and read or read the book, I think it took me about three hours to read. There's two versions. Uh, There's the 1818 original version, and then there's the revision that she did in 1831. I suggest the revision. It actually um, doesn't take long to read. So uh, I think it's also still free on Amazon that you can get for Kindle. There's also some audiobooks that you can listen to that are pretty good. There is one by uh, an actor... Uh, Kenneth uh, Bronin, I don't know his last name. His book is pretty good. So if you want, you can go listen to those, go read the book, then come back. Otherwise, uh, like I said, you don't need to have read them to follow along. All right, to help me dissect the subject today, I've invited a very special guest. I've known him an extremely long time. He's a fellow lover of literature. He used to spend hours reading Hardy Boys alongside his sister, who was reading Nancy Drew, a little sexist now that I think about it, and who would collaborate on stories as kids for just for fun. So no surprise, he's got a degree in English with a writing emphasis. I'd like to introduce you to my brother, Brian. Hi, brother. Hi, how are you? Hi, sis. Good. You know, it's fun. Thank you. It's like our first story that we wrote together as kids uh, was, <laughs> was a very- horror was a horror story really <laughs> heavily influenced by Mary Shelley, the or the original creator of sci-fi horror. Frankenstein. Yeah. I I remember that it was a horror story. I do not remember what it was about, and I think I do still have a copy of it in storage. You do? I think I have a copy as well. It involved a letter opener. That's what I really remember. Yes, a letter opener yeah. flying. <laughs> I don't- I don't know. I think we had a house that was haunted, so maybe we were influenced by that haunted house when we were growing <laughs> so. up. I I remember we printed it on one of those printers that had all the holes, and that you had to unperforate at the edges. Oh uh, yeah, that brown. Matrix, they're called yeah. That. yeah, yeah, old school. Yeah, so we I still have it in storage somewhere. I it would be interesting to pull out and read again. 
But uh, anyway, before we get started, I do want to dedicate this episode to our mom, mom. who who is our who's my biggest fan of this podcast. She is always a good feedbacker. She's my biggest supporter. She's always the first to download the first the latest episode. Um, and she she likes to text and tell me, I got the alert. I've downloaded it. And um, so I thought this would be kind of cool for her to hear her two favorite children on uh, a podcast together. So love you, mom. So before we get started, I want to start uh, doing a bio on a little background on Mary, uh, Mary Shelley. She She's got a lot of influences in her life, but uh, before writing this book, the, the reason I wanted to write this book is because I did an episode on, it was called The Almost Famous Handwasher, and it was on child, child bed fever. And the child bed fever is, I mean, you can go listen to the episode, but pretty much women would die soon after childbirth because of infection due to lack of hand washing. And unfortunately, Mary was born into this world having lost her mother because of that. So in uh, she, Mary was born in 1797. This was the beginning of the Romanticism movement and just after the Enlightenment era. She was born to two very well-known writers at the time, William Goodwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Her mother was a famous feminist writer. I actually haven't read any of her works, but I, she is very famous. Even at the time, she was famous for her writing. She uh, had one child out of wedlock named Fanny before marrying Godwin. She herself has a very interesting bio, but we are not going to get into that. You can always go and look her up, Google search her. When I was researching this about the child bed fever, it was really sad because she, most women would survive if they had a midwife. And I think it's because women are cleaner. I don't know. But because the placenta did not, the afterbirth would not come, they had to call a doctor they needed more help. So the doctor came and not only did he go into her womb multiple times, she ended up with this, this infection. So it was, it was uh, the, her placenta was in pieces. He had to keep going back and getting more. So she ended up dying 10 days later. It was really tragic, could have been prevented, but they didn't know any better at the time. So this left Godwin to raise the two girls himself, one which wasn't even his own his own blood. So, you know, he was probably a good man for doing that. But he did his best to raise them with a really unconventional um, education. He tried to educate them himself rather than sending them off to some boarding school or whatnot. And he did end up getting married to a neighbor lady who did not get along pretty well with Mary. She was about four years old when they got married. She has been said to have read and been influenced by her mother's writing. She did seem to live a more feminist type of life. She didn't want to get married, but she ended up getting marrying Percy more for, well, I'll talk about that in a minute, but more for like outside influences rather than her own 
convictions. And then, of course, she was very influenced by her father's writing. And uh, he was more, he was a gothic novelist, political philosopher. So she was, she had a lot of that influence as well. Her parents had a lot of visitors that were well-known thinkers of the time. There was doctors and writers, poets, and all these. And she would often be hiding under the furniture or uh, sitting on the stairs listening to all these things. And of course, she also would uh, go to lectures. One of the uh, one of the guests of her father, um, she. So she was very well rounded in in the topics of the time growing up. The Godwins moved, opened up a publishing bookstore type of place. And as a side note, because this is a subject that I like, it was next to the gallows. And so um, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was near the gallows. And I have an a, a I have a fascination with the gallows and executions, but which you would know if, if you listen to any of my podcasts, you'll know, I, I have a thing for um, executions, hangman, all that. But anyway, they were like sporting events. So a lot of times the streets would be filled with people going to these events. There was even a calendar that talked about when these hangs were going to be. It's like a sporting, like, a you know, like a baseball catalog that you would get mm-hmm. yeah it was kind of like that it would be a calendar of like, I'm, I'm now imagining that they sold not only books and public uh, stuff like oh my gosh but they also had pennants and like t-shirts yes. for, the, for the executions <laughs> and they would have they would have poetry and and stuff like that and they didn't even know they didn't even <laughs> that would talk about how they died before they even died things like that it was really funny so yeah they they were they were like sporting events. So I remember when I was in nursing school in Houston, I lived near the stadium. Oh my gosh, there'd be like a U2 concert or something and the streets would be filled and there's like people everywhere, cars, the traffic was awful. I imagine it like that where you're like complain cuz they kind of it kind of was burdensome. So I I kind of imagine it like that. You're like why did we put our store in front of this <laughs> like but it didn't stop people from still coming to visit them and doing their gatherings. But anyway, I just thought that was a little side note tidbit because I, I find it fascinating anyway. So back to Mary, (laughs) the stepmother didn't, like I said, didn't really care for uh, Mary very much. Uh, Her children seemed to got a better education than she did. Still didn't seem to stop Mary though. They ended up sending her off to Scotland uh, because of, they said health issues, but got better very quickly <laughs> when she got to Scotland. It probably was her stepmother probably was stressing her out and, and whatnot. She had some issues with an arm or skin or something. And so she got some new friends and some new influences from from Scotland. Specifically, there was a town that was a whaling town in Scotland that she was near that might have influenced some of that writing in the book where she goes where her first character is going off for his own adventure i totally forgot that she was she got sent off to scotland like part of the book actually takes place in scotland yes talk about writing what you know 
there was just yes. so much of her life paralleling with her with with the with the book and i know we're going to get into that but i just that's just another layer i'm just like oh my god yeah but i'm not going to go into it too too much either because i'm trying to stick to the medical side but there is a castle that she and percy end up being near i don't know if she went to do the tours but it's called castle frankenstein yeah she was yes. yeah she she i, I believe did tour it a couple times they knew so about it. there yes which i thought was really awesome I mean, there's so many fascinating things that she ran into during her travels that influenced her, like like the lake um, that the the actual lake where she wrote the book is the lake where uh, where he would go and contemplate after the first death of her his brother. He went to the lake a lot. That was the lake that um in the that she was actually in so she would describe it as the lake where she spent time that summer where she wrote frankenstein well and part of the reason i I might be jumping ahead a little bit but she she wrote this as, as part of a bet as who could write a book faster i forget it's one of her group of friends like yes who who could do it first so she i think there's there's been a lot of uh theories that she in her rush to be able to get all this done sometimes would just take a lot from her life instead of like creating things whole cloth from the outside well actually so what happened she okay so there's i told you there's two versions in the second version she wrote an introduction of how the book came about now there is a she used to write a diary and the diary is missing from that time period however one of the people that was following around with lord byron lord byron was one of the people that percy and shelley were hanging out with as well as her stepsister and i'll talk about that in a second her stepsister but um they all were at this um lake they were not in the same house Lord Byron had his own house. He also was having an affair with his stepsister, with her stepsister, Claire. She <laughs> she had an obsession with Lord Byron. She was pretty much stalking him. And again, I'm not getting into any of that because that's also fascinating and that's her own story <laughs> and I'm not going that. But she um, she was there and then Lord Byron was there and then there was a doctor uh, friend that was there he was paid on the sly to write a bio on Lord Byron. So there is that. He never did publish it. Um, and he ended up dying from cyanide poisoning a few years later, I think in 26. But they that was the year that there was that volcano that erupted and that pretty much affected the whole world. And so that was the the coldest summer, they said, on history. So there was one night where there was torrentious rain and they got stuck. I don't remember if it's at Lord Byron's house or at the Shelley place, but they got kind of stuck. And they used to stay late anyway and, and do long discussions. And they, you know, they would talk about all kinds of different topics. But Lord Byron had challenged them to because they liked to read ghost stories that was one of the things and Claire used to love ghost stories, but then 
she would get so scared she had insomnia and then Mary would have to like calm her down. But she loved ghost stories. So I guess Lord Byron had challenged them to write their own ghost story, their own story. So that's when she started to write the story. And at first she had this outline and actually that doctor whose name now I can't remember. Um, he wrote, he ended up publishing his as well. He, those were the only two that ended up publishing it, but she ended up where it took her two more years to work on it and research and then publish. 1814 is when Mary had met Percy Shelley. He had actually been writing to her father, Godwin, who I believe he said he got a lot of letters from a lot of people that were enthralled with him or whatnot. But Goodwin was pretty much, if you flattered him, he pretty much was, you got him, you hooked him, which is probably how his new wife got him. She was like, oh, are you the famous writer? And he was like, well, yes. So anyway, because a lot of his friends were like, why did you marry her? So, well, because she flattered me. So anyway, they, at first he met Godwin, found out who he was. He came from money. His father was uh, like a, 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 what do you call it? A sir? <laughs> what, what is that? Nobility. He was, he yes. was nobility. Yeah. Was and so he did have, he did have some inheritance coming. He was in a bad way financially, even though he had the store. And I think he thought of Godwin as like, oh, this is my chance out. And I'm not sure which angle he thought he was going to get money out of him or whatnot, but maybe, yeah, I will consult with you on, on your poetry for a fee, which is what I was thinking. Maybe that's what <laughs> the angle. Anyway, so Mary did meet him and they did fall in love. But then when her father found out, he did not like that at all. They were They were forbidden from seeing each other, but he ended up, uh, coming to get her and she eloped with him. And for some reason, Claire wanted out as well. And she went with them. So talk for about, most, talk about romanticism, <laughs> right? So for most of her life, for most of their life together, her and Percy, her stepsister, Claire was around and it was, she, I think it was in the diary. She kind of was hoping that Claire would go out on her own or move out. And there was a couple times that she actually did, but for the most part they got along and, and she put up with it. But I think she did. She, she did like those times with Percy alone, but Percy did spend a lot of time with Claire too. They did go out to um, the city to do things and whatnot. They had this like close knit group of friends too. So it wasn't just the three of them. So I think a lot of yes. them kind of like, like her dad had like this roving group of people who came in and out of their lives on an, on an intellectual circle. They kind of had exactly. their own thing going as a younger generation. Yes. She, she loved that kind of thing. She preferred doing that rather than going out and doing the club scene. <laughs> I don't know what you call it back then. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. 1800s uh, club scene. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but she preferred to be in, she preferred to spend that kind of intellectual time with those, with those people, with the close knit people. And there was always like a group and they called it the Shelley group often. I guess people like to gravitate towards Percy and, and whatnot. So, but the, one of the problems was 
Percy was married still. He got married pretty young. And so she also had, I believe it was two kids. And, but they, you know, they travel around anyway. She, he traveled around with Claire and Mary through Europe and they didn't have very much money, but they did end up having a child and they did lose their first child. It was soon after that she was born. Uh, let's see. Then in 1816, so they traveled around quite a bit. Um, in 1816, Percy's wife committed suicide and then they were able to get married. She was pregnant again. Uh, she named that child William after her father. Uh, she had a strained relationship with her father at this point because of the elopement. And she, now 1816s when the book was written. But at the end of that year, they did go back to London and they found out that her sister Fanny, which was her mother's first child, committed suicide. She had written a letter and went to a hotel, did the deed. Her father and Mary didn't make it in time, of course. And so that was a heartbreak for, for Mary. The couple did get married as an appeasement, kind of trying to make things up to her father and like I said, Mary was kind of on that feminist track. Even her mother didn't really want to get married, but then she got pregnant out of wedlock again and kind of got married just to, it's kind of a social outside, you know, influence kind of issue. So like her mother, she ended up getting married as well. Let's see. And then, so 1816, like I said, that's the year, the summer that she started writing that story and she was able to do a revision in 1831. So yeah, so that's where we're at at this moment. And are we going to talk about this? She actually did several versions of it between those years. Yeah. But the 1831 was the one where was the republished one. I don't think they, at the time published another one. I think she worked on revisions she did, and I think there was like a, there was like I think three different published versions. I, I forgive me on the exact number. I, I bring it up for no other reason than like much like <laughs> it's almost metaphorical that she's trying to recreate her own story that she's already published once. Uh, much like like Victor Frank is like she she keeps trying to like recreate the the, the thing that's out there. Yeah, yeah, but and it wasn't just. I mean, she did. But there was also like Percy was all constantly rewriting his poetry, constantly doing revisions. Her father, Godwin, was constantly doing revisions of his work. It was really interesting. I read that a lot, that they were constantly rewriting their own stuff. Even Lord Byron, they were all, I think maybe it's in that pursuit of perfection where you're. It's a it's an interesting thing because it, it you, you do get that. it. <laughs> You do get that nowadays with like, you know, George Lucas and and uh, Spielberg and stuff like that redoing some of their movies. But like for the most part, when you think about art, especially novels, it's like a one time version sort of situation. And anyone yeah. before them and anyone afterwards, it's it doesn't it can get some um, rewritings. But for this particular period of time, it's it's they do it a lot more. It's part of that movement that they were in of like just constantly tweaking and, and, re, and uh, changing uh, not huge changes, but small changes. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And so I think it actually speaks to like her just desire to 
just the, the themes that she brings into her her work. Yeah, one of the one of the things that said so like some of the changes she made were in the book. One of them was because there was new developments in science, and so she kind of tweaked that. And um, we'll go through the to the changes at the end too. I forgot to ask you about your paper that you wrote in college. Yeah, it was um, it was actually for a women's studies class in literature, and and one of the things that we we talked about in the, the paper uh, actually spoke to was the sense of what men were doing in a grander scheme in, in society and how it's playing out in her work, Frankenstein. So like women traditionally were the giver of life in that midwife role for thousands of years and in, and the healers. And so men starting, I, I forget exactly when men start doing this, but like start trying to take over and start asserting themselves. So like, Oh, science can do it a better way. And you used a phrase earlier uh, of like, oh, if we just had known uh, earlier type of situation, they constantly are doing that. Or like, let's try this. Oh, ketchup is ketchup is a medicine. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not a medicine anymore. Um, <laughs> so like, and they start trying to like go, oh, women, you're doing it wrong, and you're rudimentary and primitive and stuff like that. We let's let's show us how to do it. And like, like God made you that way, but you're still doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So like they change techniques and stuff like that. And there's still like that ongoing fight and debate of like, what's the proper way of doing some of these techniques and stuff like that. So like not just in, in, in childbirth, but in healing in general, but for our sakes here, what they do in childbirth. And like we, we talked about like the different, uh, versions of it so it, it almost becomes like there's a framing device a literary uh, framing device of the first it's the the captain that shows up um who's sailing and he says oh i found this i found this guy named victor frankenstein and his here he, he's writing his sister these this this guy he met and then then you switch over to victor frankenstein's story and he tells his story up until i know there's a lot of stories inside of a story instead of a story because you have the main character listening to Frankenstein's story, but he's telling his story to his sister. Then Frankenstein's telling mm -hmm. the sailor the, the story. Then Fra uh, Frankenstein's creation is telling Frankenstein a story. Exactly. And then the 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 couple whose house that he's hiding in, they have a story. Yeah. And so it's really like this story and a story and a story, which I found really fascinating. In this and tiny her, book. <laughs> and her, uh, which is, uh, she didn't create this, but so, uh, I mean, it goes back for like uh, Aladdin and the, the tale of the genie goes back much further. What was that? I'm uh, sorry. Uh, the 12 o'clock voice. Uh, the, uh, there's Baltimore. There's some of the street gangs have dirt bikes. Oh, the, okay. I live in downtown. So when they drive by, it sounds it through the canyon. And oh, yeah. Up. Wow. Okay. No, that's, I was. <laughs> Wasn't sure. It was a flyby of some sort. I'll I'll roll it back a little bit. So, what you what you have here is a metaphor of a, of a story, especially when her second volume and, and further on, where she's introduces her story of here's my novel and how I came about to write it. Then you go to the captain telling his sister through letters. Here's this guy I met named Victor Frankenstein. Then you have Victor Frankenstein at one point. It, the narration switches to him, and then you have the monster telling the story, and then you have the couple in the in the house, house telling the story. It's it's a metaphor for kind of like 
vagina, <laughs> vaginal birth. Uh, you have life inside a woman, inside bringing forth it through. The, um, so like it really drives it home of, of using it for that. It's like if you put a mirror next to all the eggs of a woman and you could see generation after generation, just like all of the stories that could be told. Exactly. So even the way she frames the story, it's, it's kind of about like childbirth. And, but like you, you've mentioned like her, her mom dying and her mom dying because the doctor couldn't quite do it right. But the, and the midwife was there. So maybe she has some, uh, some anger about how men has, man has taken over the medical field and like instead of the midwife taking care of it, here's the doctor coming in going, I know how to do this. And, um, and even though, yeah, even though she wouldn't have known the exact reason it was the presence of him that probably, but I know she did feel guilty about it, about blaming herself, about her mom dying which I think a lot of children do when their parents die at childbirth. Makes you almost feel like you're like a mom. Like Game of Thrones. Like, like that. You know, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going that. We're not going there. <laughs> no, but it's but, true that they call him a monster for killing the mom coming as he came into this, this into, yeah. the, into the world. So you can get that sort of sense of like, you know, monster baby type of thing. Monster baby. Yeah. When I, when I was researching this topic, it was like, it was like playing with Russian dolls because every time and every time I would um, I would look into one of the influences, there was another and another and another. So that could also be another way of like I could go down this rabbit hole of all these influencers. I could go way back to like the very first medical person and say, well, because <laughs> of his because of his discovery this guy discovered this and this guy discovered this and then this guy discovered this and now we're at galvanism huge rabbit hole because every single one of them is interesting in their own right and so i was like okay reel it back because i can go down a rabbit hole so far that the white rabbit couldn't even find me so (laughs) i had i had to be careful so anyway so i'm going to start talking about um before we get down too far with the uh storytelling here um going to just some of the influences that were in kind of the enlightenment period that helped to influence some of the science that was going on during Mary's time. So one of the important ones was Luigi Galvini. He was a famous physiologist that studied animal electricity, which he called galvanism. Um, He believed that the fluid that ran from head to toe in a body it could be animal or person was where the electricity was. Um, he also did some experiments kind of like Ben Franklin did the atmospheric type electricity. He very, so his whole purpose of all this research was he really wanted to find a cure for paralysis, which motivated all that research and thousands and thousands and thousands of frogs have given their lives. I was going to say, I was going to ask, is he, he's the guy where you think of like, Electricity yeah. going to a dead frog and they twitch. That's we yes. have we have him to thank for that, right? Which you know, okay. This I just I hadn't thought of this until this very moment, but I think it was seventh grade or eighth grade, and I was dissecting a frog and I was really enjoying it, and I got called out of class because my little brother broke his arm, <laughs> and I had to go home and I didn't get to finish my frog dissection. 
Thank you very much. And now you're a nurse. <laughs> you're welcome. Now I'm a nurse. And I've I've done I've gotten to dissect um let's see. I got to dissect a heart in college and I got to dissect I think it was a lung. I don't even remember anymore. The heart so was more interesting. I took your rosebud away and you made <laughs> pursuit of it. And I, had, I had to come up with my own. <laughs> and now you're on a dissecting podcast. I am. See, yes. Yeah, I broke my arm to help you get to hear it. It's all those influences. I've been obsessed ever since. <laughs> um, anyway, I just thought of that. It was really funny. Okay. But yeah, thousands of frogs gave their lives for research and not just him, but they, they were easy to obtain and, Many people tried to recreate his experiments. They were easy to do, and so poor frogs. But so, anyway, can I ask a question on that? So yeah, did he believe like they were bringing life back? Or, on like well, a death or like no, I don't think it was that he was bringing back life. However, he did think that he could stimulate those nerves in order to work again. So it was kind of like yes. It was in a way it was bringing back life, but I don't think he meant like the frog was going to come alive. I think he was just trying to get some function back to things that weren't working anymore. And so, do you know how much of that, like, did people start objecting of like, did the church get involved? Church love gets involved every time there's a science. No, they, like, hey, you're playing God. Yeah, no, they did not um, really object. And when we get into the Magnus, the in one of the influences that Victor had, he was a bishop and he he believed that there was no conflict, that there could be regeneration of life, but it was like God's purpose, kind of like God's like it was okay. <laughs> like um like there was a harmony in the the two, science and and church. And so not not always and and Darwin Charles Darwin's grandfather uh er, 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 what was his name Aramis uh Darwin he was very careful he believed in he, he wanted to like regenerate life as well and he believed in spontaneous generation regeneration theory which was like plants coming back to life or whatever but he was very careful in his writing not to offend God, not to like, he was really careful in that, um, in not stepping on the church's toes with his theories. I gotcha. Whereas Darwin was a little more, didn't, he didn't, didn't get the church involved. Yeah, yeah. But his grandfather was a lot more careful. So no, not at the time. I think, um, the time with, at least with Galvini, he didn't, uh, he wasn't trying to create life. However, his nephew did. And I'll talk about him in a minute. The other guy that was influential, well, before I get off of him, his he did have a, ne um, a nephew, but there was a guy that put into question uh, Galvini's work. And his name was Alessandro Volta. He did a commentary on, uh, many scientists did commentary on other people's work. He did a commentary that wasn't in the best of light and questioned Galvini's theories. He ended up inventing a, a device called the 
Voltaic pile? I know enough about my science classes to remember that as a term, but not what it means. So it was the very first electric battery. Ah, voltage. And yes. So he was very important in that regard because because he was challenging Galvini's work and he was doing his own experiments. He found that it wasn't the actual fluid in the animal that was causing the electricity. It was the actual metal that was causing the electricity. And so this little battery helped with his experiments and he shared that with the world, how to make one. And uh, that became something of use in Mary's time. Many of the people around her were doing their own experiments, including Percy and, and whatnot. And some of the doctors that were coming to visit his, her family home. And they were using that very, very same uh, battery so they can make their own. And if you changed out the metals, you can create a higher volt, <laughs> if you will. So that was uh, Alessandra Volta's contribution to the world, uh, which was a very important one. Um, he felt that, his, so his theory was that it was the metal that was causing the frogs to twitch rather than the fluid. And and so, yeah, so he, that was his contribution. Um, and so then on to Galvini's nephew. Now he's an interesting character, Giovanni uh, Aldini. He went on to promote his uncle's work. In 1802, when Mary was just still a baby, he moved to London. His goal was to resuscitate the dead. He wanted to bring someone back to life. That was his goal. Yeah. So I feel like whenever you say bring someone back from life, you really need some dramatic. <laughs> I know I should. This is, right? this, is, this is big moments now in history. Like we're in science. We're like now trying to bring back. Well, I do people. have a very fancy mixer that can do sounds, but I don't know that I have, <laughs> I don't know that I have a, a good one for that one. It has like a laugh track and I think it has like magical fairy dust or something. I don't know. But anyway, I should, I should look into that. Especially since I do a lot of like dead gallows executioner resuscitation. I just did a episode yesterday on the body snatchers and because I come across all these stories and I, I'm like, I want to tell these stories, but they're kind of too short and I don't want to add and make another episode really long. So I made a little mini episode, but that'd have been good. I should have, I should start doing like soundtracks <laughs> if I'm doing these dead things. <laughs> but we have crossed over from do no harm to, play god <laughs> yes so now yeah now we're in the nitty-gritty of the of the god complex stuff but anyway so he did that's what he that's what his goal was so the thing is he needs a body in order to practice so he did he did he did do a lot of experimenting on himself found it very pain, painful of course he did a lot of uh he moved on from frogs was doing bigger animals um and then he also thought maybe that the heart was the key to using and he did use that uh, Volta's battery the the funny thing is there was a rivalry between Galvini and Volta and I feel like Aldini shouldn't be using this pile thing because like he should be defending his uncle <laughs> like don't use that guy's battery <laughs> but it was kind of important and made things easier. 
Anyway, so he found a society in London called the Royal Humane Society. And the Royal Humane Society was created because apparently there was a high amount of people that were being declared dead that weren't dead, mostly drowning victims. And so their goal was to prevent that, to help resuscitate those people, to make sure that they were either <laughs> dead or to bring them back. So I um, mean, see, all of a sudden we get the Monty I Python plague victim. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Let's yeah. Go. Yeah. And so that wasn't looking good on these doctors who were like declaring them dead. And then they scare the crap out of everybody because they woke up. Um, <laughs> They're just mostly dead. They're mostly dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's probably where the Princess Bride got their inspiration. <laughs> so anyway, so Aldini had to procure a body. So he he went to them and he said, hey, I have I have these theories. I have this equipment. I really would like to try to resuscitate. So the, the problem is there's only so many bodies um, that are given from the gallows to be worked on for science. And by the way, the word scientist wasn't even invented at this time yet. So well, like I'll, I don't know. <laughs> They're philosophers. Um, and um, they worked on science. But the word scientist actually came later as a joke in the Royal Institute of Science. Uh, and then in the word stuck, I guess, which was way later, which I I thought that was interesting. Um, but in, when you're researching, they call it scientists, but that's because that's what word we know now that we use. Anyway, okay. So back to Aldini. So he was able to get a body from the gallows. They, they, they had all these laws, though. They had to wait a certain amount of time for temperature. And then um, they brought him over to Aldini's little shack or whatever. And he ended up putting the electrodes like these little things on his head and like he would do in different areas. And they worked on him a really long time, this body. The, the guy was convicted of murder, murder of his wife and infant daughter. It turned out the guy was innocent. <laughs> so this poor guy, um, yeah, his wife was, she committed suicide and the, they had witnesses later, but I've, uh, I hear this all the time that in fact, the story that I told yesterday, they, they commit these people and then they, they were innocent, but either they went through the whole process too quickly. They didn't get enough evidence. And then after like, Oh yeah, well this witness said, yeah, she did jump with the baby. Anyway, it was really sad. Okay. But I digress. So he ended up doing all these things. He opened up the chest, tried to shock the heart, and nothing happened, of course. So he was very disappointed. He tried really, really hard. One of the guys that helped him with the body ended up dying that night, and they said he died of shock because while the body did not come to life, there was a lot of convulsions <laughs> and twitching. <laughs> you put and, enough electricity through anything. <laughs> exactly. Like the frog. Is, that's, yeah, of course it's going to move. The, um, but they didn't know that. That's what they're experimenting on. The eye opened and was looking at them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was pretty shocking. And so that's kind of why the, um, they said that the guy died of shock later. And that he was a pretty stoic person. And he ended up... 
like that was a lot to handle. I can imagine so. I mean, it's 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 like when you hear about people watching uh, the first movie when the train came at the camera or the guy was shooting the gun at the at the camera, and the audiences didn't know what the hell they were seeing and just assumed it was like real, like on the other side, and would like dive, <laughs> dive, dive, trying to get out of the way of the train coming, but it wasn't there because it's just a movie. Right. We know that. So like. It's easy to know now. Oh, galvanism. Okay, you twitch something with electricity, it's going to twitch. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So, um, so yeah, it didn't work, but he he kept trying. And one of the doctors that came to the Goodwin home had seen some of his experiments. So he also relayed those to Mary, The the some of the experiments that he'd seen that Aldini do. Um, he did work on, he did have a, he did work on some patients that were institutionally melancholy that did work. So some of the electricity kind of brought them out of it, cured them, but most of the time it didn't work. It was just a lot of experimenting and whatnot. The other, uh, like I said, Erasmus Darwin he was uh, living from 1731 to 1802. Uh, was a physician and an inventor. He studied electricity and vitalism as well. He even wrote poems about it. And Mary cited him as one of the influences in her 1831 revision. Um, let's see. He had theories of evolution as well. And this is a quote. Suggested that the strength of one specimen species could evolve to result in the destruction of another which kind of relates to the making of a um that mate for for the monster if you're making another species what if that species had babies and they evolved and they could take over man then there wouldn't be any more man and Victor Frankenstein would be responsible for ruining the human race, right? So, but he did believe that one species could take over another. And I don't think he meant that in a new creature, but as in one plant could evolve and take over another plant kind of a thing. Um, no, he did. A, you're going to talk about Prometheus in a bit, but let, remember that when we get to. Right. And Prometheus. Yes. I do have a lot of notes on Prometheus and that's whole same thing as well as um, Percellus, Percellus also. And, but anyway, Darwin had, um, Mary knew of Darwin's spontaneous generation. There was a piece of uh, vermicelli that was under a glass that started to move. So he called that spontaneous generation. But looking back on it now, people think it was just from, flies that was making it move little baby egg flies you know like maggot flies yeah it makes sense right the people in mary's life such as her father and percy would have had discussions on topics of science and science theories of the day it was actually really common in that time to be having these discussions where they they would just talk openly at parties and social gatherings like we talked a little bit she liked the inner the intellectual type um environments she grew up like that uh, there was experiments in the home as well people did that all the time and I came across this drawing in one of the books even like it was shocking for me but it was like 
a whole family and friends around a table and they had this vacuum thing that was hooked up to this pipe and at the top was it was like a glass jar with a bird in it and they were sucking the air out of the jar and the bird was suffocating Jesus. while everybody was around watching this experiment and to me it was shock like it was shocking but they did experiments like that all the time it was common to use animals for such things for these experiments it yeah it yeah I, it was awful they did, they did it quite a bit at like at courts too like there's a whole thing about like uh paris and moscow like during this time period where people that they scientists would take it and they wanted to see the experiments themselves and they would perform it on humans at times yeah uh, yeah so the in the revision of frankenstein and the new one the there was a family friend because there's a there's a part in there about this tree that was hit by lightning and Victor's asking questions. In the first book, the father is explaining all of that. However, it's also said in the book that his father wasn't really into science and didn't really know much, blah, 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 blah. So to fix the hypocrisy, she she added a family friend that came in to show Victor these experiments. So he came to the home and was doing them. Okay, so Mary's influences, of course, were her mother and then her father. But there's also the people that came to visit at the house, one of which was Sir Humphrey Davy. He discovered potassium and sodium as elements. He studied chemistry and science, and he loved gases, um, like laughing gas, and he became interested in electrochemistry. Uh, Mary had gone, it said, that to, to some of his lectures, and read some of his, of his research. He was often a guest at the Goodwin home. And that he uh, would speak on um, all these topics with Mary. Or talk with her father and she would be listening up the stairs. Another person was Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was an English poet who wrote the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Which Mary absolutely adored. She was very influenced by this this um, st this po poem story and in the first story in her book about Walton who's sailing to the North Pole um, she kind of was very influenced by this story and in the story and if she, I'm not mistaken that's another one with a framing device with a story inside of a story it's such a long poem it can do that kind of but I don't remember does she does she talk about it no, I know she didn't talk about it. What I'm saying is the, the, the poem itself, the rhyme of the... Oh, yes, yes, it, yes, yes. It's, it, it's a frame. Yes. So in this, in this poem, they killed an albatross, which I guess gave them bad luck with the ship and things didn't go well, right? But in Mary's story, Walton wrote to his sister saying, don't worry, I haven't killed an albatross and wasn't going to. Now, when I read the story, obviously I didn't catch that didn't understand what that meant but then when i was researching and saw that i was like oh was, i felt like it was a little easter egg <laughs> like <laughs> you gotta catch up on you gotta read more herman melville i think he, he talks about that i did i did i did read i well i listened to moby dick last year on audible oh it's a good book but man that was the longest book ever That's it's a book. lot 
it's a long man versus yeah but i had to do it because it's a classic and it's like i feel like i'd never read it before and you kind of have you just kind of have to do it no you don't have to do anything you could like (laughs) but i did yeah and i did it as audible so it wasn't as painful i feel like i would have fallen asleep every time i tried to read it but anyway okay well i did spend time in massachusetts on one of my travel assignments and what is it is it bedford 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 is a city in massachusetts yes that's the one where he lived when he was writing the book i think so he so i feel like okay there's some history that i spent time there was at the whale museum like i spent time there and i felt like i learned about melville so i feel like i should have read his book so i did anyway okay back to the albatross well we're on from the albatross so the other another guest that came to the house was uh, anthony carlisle and he was an english surgeon he discovered the electrolysis process which is where current electronic electric current produces a chemical reaction he was well versed in anatomy as well and he like i said before learned from Aldini's experiments and he was well versed with the galvanism and he had told Mary about some of Aldini's experiments. Then there's Percy Shelley, huge influence. He was very enthralled with science, wrote a lot of poems about nature, uh, nature. He wrote a lot about science. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but they, this was the type of couple that would definitely entertain themselves with discussions about science and literature. And he would have talked to Mary a lot about his own influences growing up, which, again, is similar to the ones that Victor Frankenstein had. He was very well versed with Prometheus and Parcellus. And so those are things that they would have talked about. Then they had a close friend, Lord Byron, who would come visit. And like it's, like we talked about earlier, that was a big influence on Percy as well. Maybe not in the science aspect, but as far as the macabre and gothics part of all of that. And the three of them would talk long and into the night hours when they were on that lake that summer in 1816. He had written uh, some poetry on Prometheus her father wrote poetry, no, not poetry. He wrote a book about Prometheus that she would have known. Shelley wrote, Shelley wrote about Prometheus or Yes. Shelley was he was familiar with Prometheus, but I he wrote uh, I think in 1820 he wrote about Prometheus. He there was he would not write maybe specifically about Prometheus, but there was with Prometheus. Yes. Makes, makes sense. And that was 1820. And then Byron wrote about Prometheus. And then, of course, like I said, Godwin wrote a book about Prometheus before, well, Mary was still a child or before she was born somewhere in there. But she would have known that work as well. So she was very familiar with Prometheus. So Prometheus. Of course, the book is called Frankenstein and the Modern Prometheus. But Prometheus was a Greek god of fire, one of the Titans, and was kind of known as a trickster. He created, and there's I, there's a couple different versions of Prometheus, I believe, but the one that is most familiar to Mary would be the one created, he created mortals from clay, stole fire, which he tricked from Zeus, 
and gave it to humans, which pissed off Zeus. He was thought to have given science and art to humans and was thought to be very intelligent. Of course, this pissed off Zeus and as punishment, he tied him to a rock and an eagle would come out every day and eat his liver and then it would grow back and then it would happen again the next day. And the liver was thought uh, that is where human emotions lived. So Zeus was eating at his emotions. <laughs> um, also another cycle of birth and rebirth uh, and death and I'm sorry, death and rebirth um, <laughs> that we see in, in uh, the novel. Yes. So, so yeah. So again, he was playing, well, he was a God, but he was playing God, creating the, mortals out of clay which of course i guess was zeus's job right <laughs> zeus was the main god he was the only one that was supposed to be doing that no well i don't know enough about greek history to know he didn't create i'm sorry and i maybe I, I blanked out a little bit he didn't create mankind he gave them knowledge he gave them fire prometheus took fire and gave it to mankind okay so maybe i re i wrote read that wrong so yeah, he so like man, man was existing. He, but uh, the gods, uh, Zeus didn't want, didn't want uh, man to have. Didn't fire. one of the gods create man though? At one point, yeah, I forget who, uh, who did that, and they might have been before those gods because before them was the Titans. Uh, Zeus and those guys were like the next generation that kind of killed off the Titans and took over for them. Uh, at, I like, and then. Uh, so Prometheus stole fire and gave it to man. And by doing this, he gives them, it, giving More them knowledge. power, uh, power, knowledge. but, but it, it was a, it was a symbol of knowledge. So by giving mankind knowledge, they were able in science is another way of saying. He was trying knowledge. to improve ha humankind. Correct. And Zeus didn't like giving them knowledge. Which is what Frankenstein was trying to do. He was trying to improve mankind. He wanted to, cure people of he wanted people to live longer he wanted people to he wanted to cure things so he, exactly. victor started out with good intention of wanting to do better for humankind right and then he gets he he doesn't he does this sort of failed sort of way but they're both in over their heads yeah because prometheus is not really i think he's a demigod i i would have to check that but he's not a real god, and so the gods themselves are upset of like, how dare you play god and and do this that we've said that you you shouldn't do. Okay, yeah, but again, they were both out of their league. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tried to, tried to create and control. Okay, the another inf well, uh, one of the influences that Victor that's mentioned in the book for Victor is Cornelius Agrippa. Agrippa. As an actual person that lived 1486 to 1535, he was an occult writer, uh, alchemist, and Victor's father thought of him as sad trash. Uh, Prometheus was a god. He was a titan god. He was the first generation. Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm but sorry. I could have been wrong. I could have been wrong. No, no, um, I went to go look it up. So he's he wasn't in charge of God because there was like the gods who were in charge, uh, Zeus in the, in the, in the core 12. And then there's the Titans that were before. So he was, he was the God oh. of fire, but he was the God of fire from before, but he, he shouldn't have given the fire to the humans. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Back to Agrippa. 
Thanks for that. So he was into astrology and numerology. He also studied medicine, but he did a lot of this other side business type stuff. Uh, magic, they called it hidden philosophy, but it was known as magic. Um, he started a, a secret society in Paris. And those of you guys out there listening who are Harry Potter fans, he is one of the collectible cards mentioned in the <laughs> Philosopher's Stone book. And I guess he appears in a video, the video games or whatever. But um, yeah, so he's a, a Harry Potter figure. Can I he did. How is, do you know how out was astro? You said astro. Astrology. I'm sorry. Was at that time, was astrology kind of on the same level as some of the scientific stuff where it's not well, really if it's true, not true, or is true? Astrology and astronomy are similar, but back then, actually, they did believe that the body ran on the celestial heavens time. So a lot of surgery, well, I don't know if it's surgeries, but a lot of things would be done according to the planets and moons. So, Oh, we can't, we can't bleed you right now. We have to wait for the full moon or something like that. So a lot of it was run by the heavens, but astrology was more of like predictions and speculations of the future, which was a little more magical than running yourself by the tide. Crazy. You know, yeah. One of the interesting things was he pissed off the church, but he was never sought out for heresy, which a lot of people would have been. In fact, he, he tried to defend a, a woman that was being accused of witchcraft. But he, even though he was accused of being a magician, wasn't ever persecuted for it. And it could be because he was a physician and he was into alchemy and he was into like helping people with health. Maybe that's why, maybe because he was a man. I don't know, but he, um, he actually didn't get in trouble with the church. Whereas a lot of people would have been, he definitely had these books that he'd written that had the, like the hidden meanings in it from his occult stuff. Um, but I don't like, I didn't get far into that either. And like Victor, it didn't, I didn't read a whole lot about reincarnation or any of that stuff, but it kind of goes hand in hand with magic anyway. Right. Kind of. Mm -hmm. So Paracelsus, he was from 1493 to 1541. He was a Swiss physician, alchemist, theologian, philosopher, Percy was an avid reader of his works. He was known to being arrogant and had a temper. He changed his name to Paracelsus because it meant greater than, and it was great. He meant greater than Elias Cornelius Celius, Celsus, who was a Roman medical writer. And he was just trying to say he was better than him. Like he was just trying to say he's better than, he's better than everybody. He had, he had quite the um, ego. He was a big believer in travel, uh, that knowledge was experience. He traveled pretty much to all the places that Victor was traveling. And I mean, this guy went everywhere. He studied alchemy every stop that he went. 
He even went to the Holy Land. He was Scotland, Ireland, the Swiss, the Germany, everywhere. He, but he he believed that that was it was very important. He even he even was an army surgeon at one point. He contributed to the rise of modern medicine using chemicals as remedies such as mercury, sulfur, iron, and copper. He used those to make medicines. So he was therefore uniting medicine and chemistry, which was like the first of its kind. He rejected the views of the planets and stars controlling the human body, which is what we were just talking about. And he also had theories on reincarnation. So he had a recipe how to create life. You scatter a pile of bones, some sperm, skin fragments, and hair from any animal. And then with some alchemy stuff thrown in, uh, you put all of this, knead it, shape it, bury it in the ground with some horse manure. And in 40 days, you have your life form. It was called... Homunculus. <laughs> and he did experiments proving this, or he just I, I I don't know, but that was his recipe. And, um, and the creature just worms that just went to the manure. <laughs> like, it was spontaneous generation. Um, yeah, and then he not only that, but it, it, it was supposed to be baby form. It was supposed to come out as baby form, but with great knowledge and power. And then and that was because it was a product of art. He also had a recipe for a female that you just use menstrual blood instead of sperm. However, this came with a huge warning. The woman would not have great knowledge or powers and would be a terrifying basilisk. How did we ever survive this period of time and get <laughs> modern medicine? Isn't a basilisk <laughs> a snake? Isn't that like from the Harry Potter? The basilisk is the big snake. It is. Yeah. Yeah, so she'd be a big snake. So <laughs> so I find that interesting because it's like this warning not to do a woman. And so because Victor Frankenstein is aware of these works, I wonder if that's partly one of the reasons he was so scared of making a female version for the monster when the monster came to him and said, I want a female mate. And he's like, and he's like, okay, well, he has already known, like he already feels like this is not a good idea because um, they will not, Darwin wasn't around at that time, I guess, <laughs> I don't know, or he knew Darwin, but whatever. So he is like, okay, one philosopher, the modern philosopher is telling me that having a female is going to turn her into a basilisk and that'd be bad. But then also if I create a basilisk with this monster and they evolve, they really are going to wipe out all of the I mean, human race, right? Think about it. Like in the book, like Victor creates this monster, and when he goes to go look at it for the first time, he's so frightened he runs away. Can yeah. you can you imagine? Like so, in no. his thought process, like oh, the female version is going to be that much more scary. Yeah. Yeah. Hell no, thank you. I'll just yeah, I'll, just I'll, just go, go ahead and. Kill, kill me my and my family. family. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just take that instead. <laughs> yeah. Cause the whole time I'm thinking, okay, like I said, I read the book before I did the research and I, I was thinking that like, like come, just make him a woman already. Just give him a, just give him a female. Just let him have what he wants. Save your, save your dear love. <laughs> and so, yeah. So then I started reading all this. I was like, okay, well, Yeah. 
I guess I would probably debate that a little longer than I just did. And maybe sacrificing my family isn't such a bad idea to save the human race. So, yeah. So let's let's not make a basilisk. Anyway. So, yeah, that would have me contemplating. I mean, he really did contemplate because it took him years because he, I mean, he dragged his feet. Then he went and was trying to get the new knowledge. And then he was, like, trying to... I guess he was trying, he, like he almost succeeded. He all, he was really close if he had had the body already put together and all he had to do was electricity or whatever his, or the vague uh, recipe to life was. He just needed the movie versions, which is so much easier than in the book version. Cause in the movie versions, you just go get a body and you put a bunch of electricity in it. And voila, oh, voila there you go. You have Jennifer Beals and you have thanks to sting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for those, if those who know the nineteen the mid eighties version of it, but like yeah, you just boom boom, there you go, easy recipe. Yeah. There was said to have been a a ballet yes. of the Frankenstein, which I I, have I would love yeah. I would love to see. Um, yeah. I guess that was during Mary's time, in between the before the re revision of the book. Anyway, the last one is Albertus Mangus, and he lived. 1200 to 1280 German scholar philosopher he was a bishop and a church doctor he actually turned to be a saint in 1941 of natural science which good for him studied liberal science uh, liberal arts taught theology he had a great understanding for natural philosophy he uh, felt that they were not in conflict with one another that's what I was talking about earlier it felt like there was not a con- like the, between the, the relationship between science and and God were in harmony. He was interested in human um, psychology and the relationship between body and soul. He believed that the essence of a soul is human intellect. Which okay, then that brought me to the thinking: Did Frankenstein's monster have a soul? And if so, how was it created? Because the the fiend was very intelligent. He learned very quickly, right? He had to learn quickly. He was left on his own. And he had this understanding of right and wrong. And so if that's correct, then he must have had a soul. Because according to Mangus, the essence of a soul is human intellect. I don't know how they felt about it at that time. But with the romanticisms, they were very much they love they were fascinated by the idea of souls and emotions and where those came from because animals didn't have either of course right yeah i thought that was an interesting thing well, i, I had, didn't i hadn't thought of that before the and the, soul. the month the 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 creation i'm sorry i keep calling him a monster but he's not a monster he just misunderstood uh yeah. the creation the creation and part of it he's arguing is like, hey, you created me. I'm I'm real. Uh, I should therefore have a, I should have a wife, and I should be able to have love. So therefore, that's his argument. Basically, is right. I, I have a soul. I feel like it was justifiable. I mean, the guy Victor left him to fend for himself. Left him alone. This poor guy is alone in the world. I I keep thinking back, like, well, what if he had just befriended the guy? befriended the this fiend 
like the guy on the ship, Walton, when he when he saw him on the ship, he didn't like run away. He actually was having a conversation with him. Why couldn't Victor have like a conversation with him? Like, you know what I mean? And she doesn't describe him like as any different. Like, for some reason, I mean, he's huge, but he was yeah, purposely, yeah, he was purposely huge because and uh, see through. They said <laughs> she described his skin as being a little transparent. Yeah, so you could like yeah. yeah, that would be really creepy. But I feel like he would have at some point put some clothes on. You because he was cold. But in the one of the, il- the illustrations in the book, in the, the revision, there was illustrations. The monster that the illustrator drew did not look that hideous, really. He never is. He's not in no yeah. like if uh, even in the book that Shahaj describes him. Like she makes him eight feet tall, but I think because of, for science reasons, it's easier to work on the inner organs if it's bigger, or they can take the electricity or something. She, it, she, she tries to justify it being bigger, but other than being huge, he's not really that much of a monster. He has a normal face. He's a normal bipedal, like humanoid. Why, why would he be considered? He has a lot of scars. Okay, but you are listening in time and. If, you're a doctor and you're used to seeing people getting cut open. Yeah. It's, I can understand the people in the street being scared, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, you saw him go into the into the into the thing, the device before you shot it through electricity. How, how what happened? Like if he's not green. Um Yeah, <laughs> the green thing is interesting. With and and the little um was it the Carl Boroff or whatever his with the metal thing sticking out of his neck and all that. I guess yeah. yeah. Anyway, so back to Mangus. Well, for the most part, that's probably his contribution. That's pretty much it for the for the influences on Victor. The other thing that I was going to talk about was the preservation of all these body parts. There's, like I said before, there's different levels of decay. There's there's problems with preserving a body when they did anatomy at the time. They would take apart all the pieces. They would boil the bones to get everything off, to clean them. When a body starts to decay, of course, uh, the wait, wait, wait. They took the body apart. For what yes, part? when they so when they were doing an, uh, dissections, because like anatomy was a big thing in the Enlightenment period, like learning the body and all that. Okay. Okay. Well, one of the things they would do, they would dissect and they would take apart things. They would. For some reason, the, there's there's a picture of the dog getting the heart. That's like the most important part. Like the heart, I feel like the heart, but they they didn't know that was like they didn't, they didn't know. Together. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, and the brain, they didn't really know much about the brain, and the brain would uh, get mushy and collapse until they figured out how to preserve it. Uh, as someone figured out, if you put it in alcohol, it starts to get solidified. There's still brains from that time period that are intact that are on display in museums but they do they would take the bones and they would boil them to get rid of like the film and the cartilage and the not cartilage but the tendons and all that stuff and then they would put the body back together i think it was almost like they were more interested in the display there was there was especially one doctor named hunter who had a huge collection of animals and even people there was um there was a a really, I think he was like seven foot seven or something like that. 
And he kind of stalked him until he died and to get his body. And he had his body on display. But I think what I think what it was was when they were doing the anatomy, it was more important to like show the students how to dissect, how like here's the liver, here's the kidneys, but they weren't trying to figure out what those things did. They were just trying to learn how to do the dissection and right. to <laughs> so, so they first they figure out, okay, what's here? And it took some another 10, 20 generation or so to go, okay, what does it do? <laughs> yeah, they were a little slow on the uptake, but I think it was more okay, so in this period in that enlightenment period, they were doing all these anatomies. And, and even even in the romanticism, they were still doing anatomies. They were they were doing them so hand like the important thing was doing hands-on and they wanted them to learn how to do them, learn how to dissect, learn how to do this anatomy. They could see when there was an issue like, uh, okay, there's some scar tissue on this heart. That's why he died. He had, he did have some heart issues and like the, um, and here's an, here's a, another side note. A lot of the doctors who were doing these dissections did not want to become one of the dissected. And so they would have their bodies put in coffins with like double locks and steel coffin. Like they were trying to protect themselves. <laughs> and some of the rich would even put like the gates and cages over their, over their burial sites and stuff because they didn't want to become one of those dissected. There was one doctor hunter who was like, okay, I know I have a heart issue. I want to donate my heart to science or uh, whatnot. And he, he, he wanted to be given to science. So he wasn't really a, a hypocrite. And, but the, but all of his colleagues had such a high regard for him. They didn't have the heart to do that to his heart. And so they, they, they did bury him with his heart. <laughs> so they didn't have the heart. So they finally get a volunteer and they don't have the heart to take the heart. Nice. Exactly. Which I thought was an interesting story. But yeah, a lot of them did. And the other thing was when the body snatchers would come and they would, they kind of got to give their own price. Like they would say, because they were putting such a risk on themselves, they would go to the doctor and if the doctor didn't want to pay what they wanted to pay, they could easily get the doctor in trouble. So the doctor kind of was in a between a rock and a hard place. They didn't have a lot of room to, to do negotiations. So they would, um, they would, they, they kind of had to give the body snatchers their price. Um, and also they, I think they were like really scared of, of ending up. They were scared of ending up just like, well, there's that. still that kind of like old school thinking of your soul's connected to your body sort of situation. And the, Christianity that the place part into this nobody wanted to be cut up afterwards right and that's that's the other reason there was a law I talked about this in my episode yesterday the the um, there's a law that said that a murderer was to be dissected and so it was supposed to be an extra punishment wow yeah it's because murder like just hanging wasn't enough you also were going you had the knowledge that you were going to be cut up and not only that, they were events. So they, 
when they did a dissection, there was large groups of people that would come and watch. And it wasn't necessarily just other doctors or residents or um, fellows or whatever. It was like the public would come and see. So it was, it was a big thing. Yeah. There was no television. They needed this. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't think I, I, I'm fascinated with all of the hangman stuff now, but I don't think I, I couldn't go watch an execution. I don't think I could do that. I don't think, and, and let alone, not only did the murderer get hung, they also, the family and friends would come and see their dissection. I don't think I could, like, if you were a murderer and you were hung and then they were going to go dissect you, I don't think I could go watch them cut you up. That, that's, that's too macabre. That's too weird. I think I'm better okay watching them get cut up than the actual... The hanging? Well, even in the hanging, yeah, they, they were pulling on their legs trying to make them suffocate a little quicker, so they... Yeah, because if your neck didn't break right right off the right. get go, you would it was it's a suffocation. And most of the time they didn't. It was just yeah. So you should listen to yesterday's podcast. It's a short one. I I I, I memorized it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, after Mary's um, book came out, she did become famous, but she did not become rich. Uh, after the book was published, it was published anonymously. People didn't have any clue that it was written by a woman. And uh, then Shelley, Shelley did move back to Italy, including with her stepsister. And then another string of tragedies happened to her. She lost another daughter. And, and then, then she lost her son soon after that while she was pregnant. Then uh, she did have that son, but that fourth child, they named him Percy. He did live out both of his parents and he went on to help preserve their work. He didn't become a writer or anything of following any of the footsteps of her his parents, but he did love sailing, which is how Percy, her his father died, was in a sailing accident with one of his friends. They got caught in a storm. Their boat um, didn't make it, and Mary was was devastated, of course, by that. She ended up moving back to London, and even though Lord Byron tried to help get her some money from the father-in-law, uh, that didn't work out. But she ended up getting some loan from the inheritance that her son went to get. So she, I think it was like $10,000 a year that they were giving her to live on. She still kept writing to make money. Um, but the loan ended up being from the inheritance. And the father didn't die until like he was in his 90s. So by the time Percy inherited that money, he had to pay the loan back. So he, he had to go against that loan. Like So there was hardly anything left from the inheritance. By the time um, they paid off the, the debts from his father, Percy's father had a lot of debt um, and paid that loan. There, was, there wasn't much left for the poor kid. <laughs> Although he wasn't really a kid by then. He, I think he was, you know, a little older. Her book was turned into theater. Like I said before, it was a ballet, I think, and, and some other things. And then she was asked in 1831 to do another release and, and that she was allowed to do a revision. So here's a little bit of a list of things that were changed from the 1818 book and the 1831 book. For one thing, <laughs> Victor married a family friend instead of a cousin. In the original book, 
it was Victor's father's sister's child who came to stay with the Frankenstein family and and it was like always known that he was going to marry her and all that stuff. But I guess in the 1831 version, which I probably read when I was young, but I don't remember. He's It's a family friend. Also, I, we talked about the family friend was the one that introduced Victor to electricity. In the new book, Professor Waldman had more of an influence than he did in the first book. Some of Victor's early science education was removed. And that was because Mary wanted to keep him more ignorant about it so that he was following along more with the older um, like Agrippa and Parsalius and like that was his education rather than learning more of the modern science so that's why in the book there was like he was supposed to attend lectures but there was an accident of some sort and he couldn't make it until the end and then also galvanism was mentioned in the newer version Mary died when she was 53 from a brain tumor. She worked her brain too hard. If only they had some science and medical knowledge to be able yep. to help. If only they knew something about all those brains in the jars. They could have. They didn't realize that that's where the thinking came from. They didn't know the brain was the processing center. Yeah, didn't they, didn't they think thinking came from like what? The spleen or something stupid? Yeah, I think, or the liver. Well, that's yeah. emotion. I don't know. I don't know. But it wasn't the brain. I mean, you, like, <laughs> I don't know what they thought the brain. I haven't researched that. But the I brain, never, I, that's, I that's actually am going to be doing an episode on lobotomy next month. So oh, I'll know more. I'm still researching it. But um, I'll know more about the uh, the thinking behind the thinking. I don't. Yeah, that's. I'm fascinated. That was quite clever, and I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of now curious. Like, I I don't think I've ever heard what they thought the brain did before. Before now, yeah. what, what was his purpose before? But the lobotomy. Oh, that's gonna be very interesting because going into galvanism now, and how it brings back life, but how we actually said life, how we end it uh, through the or try to alter it with electricity. Yeah. In the lobotomy, that's that's fascinating. But, yeah, so that's going to be, I'm going to do, it's going to be a two-part. It's going to be, one's going to be on Bellevue, and the other one will be on Lobotomy. Bellevue so, Hospital? Yeah. Oh, you know who worked, who used to work there, right? Who? Our stepbrother. Oh. There you go. Interesting. I'll have to ask him questions. Yep. So I have a lot of new, uh, a lot of episodes coming up. Um, I'm trying to work on one for Thanksgiving. It's the Kellogg Brothers. Oh my God, that's so exciting. The Road yeah. to Velville guys. Yes. Uh, that movie, I just watched it again, is on, uh, is it Amazon or Hulu? One of those for free. It is? Yes. Oh, we try to watch it as part of some sort of theme. That I think it's doing. on Hulu for free. That's awesome. It one of those not, two. It wasn't for free when I was trying to find it before. Yes, it wasn't. It, one of them, it's, uh, I think on Amazon, it's like not. But I just watched it, and I, and also the Mary Shelley movie is on Hulu for free. Mary Shelley Frankenstein might we just no, can't. not the Frankenstein. Mary okay. Shelley. They did an autobiography on her. Oh yes, I, I, I and I went to go watch it. To be honest, I had to stop because I was like, "That is not true. That is not true." <laughs> that is not true. And so 
I was like, no, I have to stop before it it ruins my research. Yeah. So I'm now going to go watch it because now I'm like, okay, no, it's not going to be true. I know it's a movie and they're going to have to edit a lot of stuff well, out. If, if you, you asked about, because uh, you, know, you knew I knew the book pretty well, I was very worried about my knowledge of the Mary Shelley Frankenstein movie with Kenneth Branagh directing. Branagh, he does the audiobook version of this he, story of and it he did a really good job he's he's fascinating uh he's fascinated with frankenstein that's why he made it into a movie uh and so like i've seen that more recently than i read the books so i was really worried that i was going to like misremember and there's interesting little changes between that he made through it so it was like um uh like the the, the girl that he ends up marrying she was an orphan that got like uh adopted by their family and like some of the the first doctor and some of the changes they made um and like the needing the new wife i'm off on a whole other rabbit hole in this you should probably but it, it's it he, he made some interesting choices but um there's been so many movie versions of it through the years and it's interesting watching the what what we think of in pop culture sense of of it is no longer her book but more the boris karloff version and young young Frankenstein with uh, what's his face and like how it becomes more. I love young Frankenstein though. I love that movie. It's the best version of it. It, it, Yeah. Yeah. But in its own right, the book is really good. The book is very well done. It is. Uh, It's a, it's a great book. And, and so I don't feel like it takes away the movies take away from it. I just, no, 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 you're right. But I feel like the people should read the book because it was really good and it's thought provoking and it's it's literally like the first sci-fi book uh which yeah. is fascinating in its own right um, yeah yeah it's it's great but anyway uh thank you for for doing this episode with me it was, this was so much fun Anytime it was fun it was really long i know this is the longest one i've ever done so hopefully we don't bore people too much and and the people that will listen to it are going to be fans of the book, I hope. But if you um, need me to ever come back and just ask them questions and or uh, you know <laughs> just explain what little bit of knowledge I do have of something <laughs> here. All right. Well, I do have an Instagram, dissectingmedicalhistory.com. So if you have any questions for Brian and his Mary Shelley <laughs> knowledge, you can write comments there. Well, thanks for listening. Catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's mental vacation from your current life. If you did and are curious for more, please subscribe. Before you go, if you have anything to add to today's show or you have a topic that you think is worthy of dissection, please reach out on dissectingmedicalhistory.com or Instagram on Dissecting Medical History. Thank you, and stay curious.